If I haven't met you before, my name is Mike, and we're in a season that's not normal church. Um, we're in a five-week uh, kind of equipping class. We've kind of turned the pulpit into a Sunday school uh, for a five-week period. Um, and I need to acknowledge that for some of you, this has been tough sledding. Uh, for some of you, you're like, sweet Jesus, when are we gonna have normal church again? And I, I get that. Uh, some people have not loved apologetics and I am okay with that. You do not offend me if that's you. Um, but I do wanna start off this morning with a couple of announcements. I keep on forgetting to turn the power on this thing. There we go, let's try that now. Two announcements for you. Number one, if you're the kind of person that says, please let this apologetic stuff end, I got good news for you. Two weeks from now, that will be the case. And we'll be back to normal church in two weeks time. However, if you are of that rare breed where you have enjoyed this series on apologetics, I got good news for you. Uh, in September, we're actually gonna have a follow-up class to this on Thursday evenings where we're gonna delve into more apologetics content. Myself, along with T.C. Cannon, one of the gems of the Franklin campus, along with another gentleman, Ryan Rayburn, the three of us are gonna be facilitating an evening class on Thursdays on apologetics. For those of you who were like me the first time you experienced apologetics, I felt like my mind came alive and I couldn't uh, believe how much I was enjoying learning how to articulately defend the Christian faith. So if you want more of this, Thursday nights in September, um, Paige Stroop showed me earlier today that it's already on the website. You can already sign up for that. We're doing it in September because that's when a whole lot of other Bible studies and stuff starts. So a few weeks after this, we can go further if you choose to do so. Second announcement is that I don't have any expectation that everyone in this room, if, if you're enjoying apologetics, uh, would be able to kind of keep up with the speed of the content that's coming your way. I've, I've tried to not overpack the time, but the reality is that we're covering 60 minutes of content in 40 minutes every week, and there's a lot, okay? I've made a copy of all of my teaching note transcripts, the PowerPoints, there's supplemental articles. They're all gonna be posted on the website as well. If you go to the place where the recorded sermon is stored, go to sermons, uh, choose summer equipping uh, series, and then choose resources. And that's where you'll find all the stuff uh, for this. Uh, I remember uh, when I was at seminary, I had one professor, a guy named Greg Kokel, who at the start of every class would hand out a copy of his teaching notes and say, this is what we're gonna be covering today. And I just felt really honored by that because I didn't have to worry about trying to keep up. And I don't want you to be worried about trying to keep up. Should you ever wanna tackle this with your children, with your fellowship group or what have you, these resources will be available uh, for you online. All right. Here's what we've covered so far. Uh, we're three weeks in. This is week number four of our five-week five series on apologetics. Last week, the guy who led me to Christ, a man named Rod Sawatsky, was here speaking. His message was about how to have conversations that count. He said we need to know the gospel and we've gotta be willing to share it with a world full of broken and hurting people. And he affirmed that we kind of need to get over our fear of not doing it well, not doing it right. The big thing I took away from my time with Rod is increase your level of boldness and be willing to get out there and mix it up a little bit with people who need to hear the gospel. First uh, Peter 3.15 tells us to be willing to share the hope that we have. That hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Before Rod was here, week one and week two, we learned that the gospel has not been corrupted, that the New Testament has not been corrupted over 2,000 years of textual transmission. We learned in week two that the Bible is unique among all literature in a number of different ways, one of which is that it contains a whole host of predictions about the promised Messiah of Israel. 
Um, and that these promises were fulfilled in the same one person, a man named Jesus Christ. Well, today we're gonna continue forward in our defense of the New Testament. We're gonna do our third and final entry into the New, into the New Testament portion of this series. And the reason we're going back to the New Testament is that we've left the critic just a little bit of wiggle room that we plan to address this morning. Now, had you been a critic or a skeptic and you're attending this series, you might be thinking the following. Mike, I'll grant you that this book that you're talking about, the New Testament, is textually intact. I'll grant that the Bible in our hands is an accurate copy. I'll even acknowledge that this guy named Jesus seems to have fulfilled all these predictions that were written hundreds of years before he lived. But how do we know that these New Testament authors reported on him accurately? Maybe these guys made up a whole bunch of stories to make Jesus simply look like the promised Messiah of Israel. So our question today is, is the New, in the New Testament, do we have an accurate copy of the truth or do we have an accurate copy of a lie? So said another way, why do we feel like we can trust the New Testament authors as trustworthy historians, right? We're seeking to discover this morning if the major events as described in the New Testament really happened. Now, to some people, to look at this, this task might seem impossible, right? After all, how can you know the past with any certainty? We can't go back in time and relive historical events over again. Well, I'll tell you that the methodology I'm gonna use this morning is basically to apply the same standard that a jury would use in determining whether or not a defendant has committed a crime. Now, you gotta keep in mind, if history can't be known, then no jury could ever reach a verdict. And what we're gonna look at this morning is whether or not we can conclude beyond reasonable doubt whether or not what is said in the New Testament really happened. And from a, uh, a methodology or an approach standpoint, you need to realize that historians need to discover past events similar to how a policeman or an investigative reporter uh, would show up on a crime scene and try to do their assessment as well. So my challenge to you is let's roll up the sleeves and let's do a little bit of CSI work this morning. Now, join with me on this analogy. Let's say that you are a forensic investigator and you're showing up to a crime scene. There's a, there's a, a, a perimeter a, a sort of taped off and uh, you put on your, your gloves and you're venturing into the taped off perimeter. And you see over here, there's a body on the ground. Uh, you see over here that there's a park bench that looks like it's been disturbed. It's on a concrete slab, but it's not sitting quite square on the concrete slab. You're not sure if the bench and the body are connected. There is a backpack sitting over here by the bench that's open. There's some content spilled out. And by the body, there's a briefcase. And by the briefcase, there's like a 18 inch replica of the Eiffel Tower. And you're not sure how all the pieces fit together. You look out this way and you see that there's some people that are walking away from the crime scene. You look over here and there's people standing still looking at the crime scene. Maybe they see the lights. Maybe they're just spectators. And there's other people over here that are walking towards you. Now, if you're an investigative or a forensic scientist, what's most important to you as you're trying to figure out what happened? What's the number one most important thing you need to be able to sort of reconstruct the past? What are you looking for? What is it? Uh, yeah, we're looking for witnesses. And I think you said it specifically, we're looking for eyewitnesses. Now, do you want one eyewitness or in your best case scenario, would you like to find more than one eyewitness? We want multiple independent witnesses. 
Okay, let's keep on this witness train for a second. What else is important in witness testimony? Anything else come to mind that would be valuable to you as an investigator? Shout it out if you've got something on your mind. What is it? Can you believe them? Yeah, are they trustworthy? Can we, do we have any confidence in the character of the witnesses? Is that important to be able to rebuild or ascertain the truth? You bet. If the guy giving testimony you discover has got a rap sheet as long as your arm, and some of those offenses include perjuring himself under oath, I might not weigh too heavily on this person's testimony. So eyewitness character is super important. And one other thing about the witnesses, how soon do you want these guys talking? Soon. We're looking for early testimony as close to the crime as we can. Okay? Outside of witnesses, is there anything else that's important as we try to rebuild or redetermine what happened at the crime scene? What else would be, would be important to you? Sorry? Yeah, was there anything recorded? Yep. What else? Sorry? Evidence. Evidence. Yeah, is this backpack connected? Does that briefcase matter? What about the Eiffel Tower? Do the ancillary pieces of evidence, right, the supporting evidence, do they fit the witness narrative or do they not? So we're looking for witness testimony. If you're tracking in the handout, there's some blanks to fill in. We're looking for witness testimony and we're looking for supporting evidence. Does it all kind of fit and come together? Now, as we're gonna look at the New Testament specifically, we're gonna kind of continue on down this examination of the New Testament. Let's start, first of all, with the witnesses, shall we? Do we in fact have eyewitness testimony recorded in the New Testament as we look at what this is telling us, specifically about Jesus? Well, Luke says this. Luke says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were hand to us uh, by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And he says, therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good to me also to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Luke is saying, I have carefully investigated everything, including the eyewitnesses, and here is my narrative. What does John say? John says in 1 John 1, 1, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. John is saying, I was there. What does Peter say? Peter says, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then Paul, in his uh, resurrection narratives in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, then he appeared to James, the brother of Jesus, then to all the apostles, and then last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. My friends, the New Testament authors were there. They are writing from their own experiences. Now, you might hear a critic saying, yeah, Mike, but these guys have an agenda. These guys are Jesus fans. They've got like the capital J on their sweaters. These guys are on the Jesus bus. I don't know if we have kind of, you know, unbiased testimony in these people. I, I might agree with you on that. But be careful if you take that position because you're essentially saying that a Jew can't accurately report on their experience at Auschwitz. 
because they must have an ax to grind against the Nazis, right? They've got biased reporting. There's no way they're objective. They just wanna get the Nazis in trouble. Guys, listen, I'm not saying in our, in our investigation that we limit the scope to the disciples of Jesus and the authors of the New Testament, but I'm saying that in any court of law, eyewitness testimony is preferred above all other forms of testimony. If someone was there and they say, I saw it, I was, where it was, I was, where it, I was present when it went down, these people have a primary uh, opinion in any court of law. Right? We're gonna look at what some of the non-fans of Jesus have to say about him later, but just realize that eyewitness testimony, even if they're considered to be potentially biased, these guys have a primary voice in any court of law. All right, number two, do we have eyewitnesses? Yes. Number two, is the testimony they give early? That's the next question we need to ask. When did these guys provide their testimony? Now, I learned of the importance of this when I was at seminary. I actually didn't know this at the time, but I've discovered that there are several critics of the New Testament who take the position that the New Testament wasn't written down until around 150 AD. And I'm like, okay, that's interesting. And I didn't understand at first why that's problematic. And then it kind of hits you when you think about the math. If the New Testament um, letters don't come into existence until 150 AD, that's long after the death of the eyewitnesses. So if Luke's gospel shows up at 150, Matthew's gospel shows up at 150, these guys were alive at the time of Christ, there's no way it was them that wrote the letters that bear their name. If the New Testament didn't come into being until after 150 AD, every letter in the New Testament is essentially a forgery. So when did the New Testament get written down? Becomes the question. Well, before I dive into my position on this, let me give you an analogy. Okay. Let's say on your way home from church today, you swing by a bookstore, a Barnes & Noble or something like that, and you say, I'm going to pick up some summer reading. And you see a book that's advertised on a shelf that says the history of the World Trade Center. I'm like, oh, that sounds interesting. So you turn over the book and you look at the back cover and you realize that the author of the book is actually someone who was a tenant in the North Tower of the World Trade Center. They ran their business out of the North Tower for 25 years. And so you realize, yeah, they were very close to the action. They have a very credible perspective to be able to write a history of the World Trade Center. And in the event that you're that type of annoying person that always likes to know the ending before you start and you flip ahead to the last chapter in the book, you discover that the history of the World Trade Center, that this book ends with the two towers still proudly standing in New York City. What do you have to assume if the book ends with the two towers still standing upright in New York City? What's your necessary conclusion? Sorry? Yeah, exactly. You have to assume that the book was written before September 11th, 2001. By the way, 20 years this year. Isn't that crazy? 20 years this year. Guys, if someone is writing a history of the World Trade Center and leaves out arguably the single most important event in the history of the World Trade Center, you have to necessarily assume that the book was written before uh, September 11th of 2001. Now, let me, let me jump back into the New Testament. If you're a Jew, your whole life is in a sense centered around the temple in Jerusalem. This building has been standing for over a thousand years, okay? Solomon constructed this thing around 957 BC, 
And if you're alive somewhere around the time of Christ or shortly thereafter, this building is very familiar to you and your family. You've been coming here with your family for over a thousand years. Why? Because you consider the temple of Jerusalem to be the literal dwelling place of God on earth. Your family comes here every year to offer sacrifices for the forgiveness of your family, for the forgiveness of your people. This is not some proud building. This is your national identity. This is the core of who you are as people, as Jews. But do you know that 37 years after Jesus was killed, in the year AD 70, in a very well-documented war with the Romans, that the Jewish temple is utterly destroyed. It is completely and utterly decimated. In the same war with the Romans, Jerusalem is sacked. Tens of thousands of your countrymen are killed. And the heroes of your New Testament, should you be a Jesus follower at this time, we're talking about uh, Peter, we're talking about James, we're talking about Paul. All of these people were killed in this time period. But you know what's interesting? The New Testament mentions none of that. Think of that for a moment. The New Testament mentions none of this. Now, how does the book of Acts end? Acts is a historical rendering. It talks about the expansion and the growth of the early church, focused on what's happening. The events are very specific and very detailed. Luke is an incredible historian. How does the book of Acts end? It ends with Paul awaiting trial in Rome. He's seen Festus, he's seen Felix, he's appealed to Caesar, and now he's in Rome in handcuffs, in a cell, awaiting his trial. Does anyone know what happens in the city of Rome in AD 64? Does anyone know? There's an incredible fire, an incredible fire in this room. They call it the burning of Rome. It was during the reign of Nero. All but four of the 14 quarters of Rome were ravaged by this fire. And yet there's no mention of that at all. Paul's in Rome at the time of Acts. There's no mention of the fire. There's no mention of his death. There's no mention of the other disciples' deaths. Guys, how can the New Testament be utterly silent on all of these massive issues? They hadn't happened yet. Well, Mike, maybe it's just an oversight by the biblical authors. Okay. If it's an oversight, it's an oversight, the magnitude of leaving out the collapse of the World Trade Center and you're writing a history of the World Trade Center. It's that significant. Why would the gospel authors leave out the destruction of the Jewish temple? Especially because Jesus himself predicted it. My friends, the New Testament was largely completed before the year 70 AD. We have early testimony in the New Testament. All right, let's talk about eyewitness character. How do we know these guys told the truth? Let's face it, all of us have lied at one point in time in our life. How do we know the New Testament authors didn't lie when they provided their writings about Jesus? Did these people not just fabricate a whole bunch of falsehoods to try to support their views or make it look like Jesus was the promised Messiah of Israel? The question we're really asking here is, what are the marks of authenticity? What do we look for in the writings to make a determination as to whether or not these people told the truth or whether or not they perjured themselves? And I will tell you that witness examiners in a court of law are looking for several things. The first thing that examiners are looking for when they cross-examine uh, a witness is, does the witness accounts contain divergent details? Do the witness accounts contain divergent details? 
And you might be saying, no, 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 Mike, you mean do the witness accounts contain the same details? No, I actually don't mean that at all. Do the witness accounts contain divergent or differing details? Why is that important? No two people will ever see the exact same details when they witness an event. They will never report on the details exactly the same and they'll never use the same words when they report on the event. I don't know how many of you are basketball fans. I met my friend Rod on a basketball court. I happen to know for a fact that the Milwaukee Bucks won the NBA championship earlier this week. Okay, hooray. Um, so if you're a basketball fan, you say, hey, what do you know to be true about the Milwaukee Bucks? They won the championship and you'd be right. How many games did it take him to win it? If you're watching, it took them six games. They won four games to two in a best out of seven series. But if we start getting deeper and deeper and deeper into the details, I would notice that your version of game six was different than your version of game six. You might recite details that this person doesn't cite. We're gonna see some variance. Once you get into the minutia, you have to find different details because that's how you know that someone's story was in fact their own, okay? When you're in a court of law and two witnesses provide word for word similar testimony, it's actually a red flag. That suggests collusion that these people got together and smoothed over their stories so they'd have the exact same account. That's a massive red flag in a courtroom. So do the New Testament writers, and let's even focus just on the gospels because we've got four gospels, four accounts on the same guy named Jesus. Do we have divergent details in the gospels? And the answer to that question is a glowing yes. Now we find a ton of overlap a ton of similarity when we look at the Gospels. We find that all four Gospels talks about Jesus' crucifixion. All four Gospels talk about the feeding of the 5,000 and other miracles like that. But what's interesting is when they report on these things, there is slightly different details when all the Gospels tell the same story. Who was there for this healing? What are the details of the crucifixion? What did that sign say above the cross? All the Gospel authors have slightly different versions. So we see that they have a different account of all these events. But what's super intriguing to me and what catches my attention is the details that we find in the gospels that are idiosyncratic to that specific gospel writer. Now, let me give you an example of this. What was Matthew's occupation? What did he do for a living? He was a tax collector, right? Interestingly enough, we only know that because Matthew himself tells us. You can't go to Luke or John or, um, or uh, Matthew, Mark, or Mark. Can't believe I forgot that. You can't go to the other three gospels to find out that Matthew was a tax collector. Only Matthew himself tells us that he's a tax collector. There's some other details which are fascinating. So let's just, let's just get into Matthew's world for a second. This guy collects tax. This guy is in charge of financial calculations, financial assessments. He's looking at what's owed, to whom it's owed. He's looking at the world through a very financial lens. This is his career, okay? Would it surprise you to learn that that really cool story of Peter catching the fish and holding in his hand and reaching into the fish's mouth to pull out a coin, and that coin was sufficient to pay two people's temple tax? Do you know where we find that story? Matthew, the guy who collects tax. Oh, but that's a cool story. That should be in the other gospels, right? Nope, only in Matthew. Interestingly, only in Matthew. Uh, there's a parable of the unforgiving servant. It's a story of this man who owes a ton of money to his master but the master forgives him his debt. And then the servant goes off and wrings the neck of someone that owes him a smaller debt. He was forgiven, but he forgot to give or he chose to not forgive the person who owed him less money. What's interesting, that's a financial parable. Where do we find that? Matthew, only in Matthew. 
There's a parable of the workers in the vineyard. It's a story of a landowner who has a vineyard and he hires people to go working in his vineyard and he hires a group of people to get roll on the start of the day and he agrees that, hey, I'll pay you a denarius if you work all day in my vineyard. Like, great, they go to work. The landowner finds other people at 9 a.m., more at noon, more at three o'clock. And at the end of the day, everyone, regardless of how many hours they worked, gets paid the same one denarius. And the guys that started at 6 a.m. are all ticked off because they feel like they're being treated unfairly. Well, it's a financial story. Where do we find that story? Only in Matthew. It's not in the other accounts. We learn from Matthew that the soldiers that were posted to guard the tomb of Jesus were bribed. They were paid hush money to tell a different story as to why the body was missing. We learn in Matthew, hey, tell the others that the disciples came while you fell asleep and stole the body away. No other gospel refers to this as being a bribe, an exchange of money to cover up or to conceal the truth. But Matthew tells us, it is fascinating the amount of financial detail we find in Matthew's gospel. Why? Because Matthew's a financial guy. When you look at Luke's gospel, you find a whole lot of medically related details. Why? Same thing. Guys, I'm a big believer that the Bible is divinely inspired, that the New Testament writers are operating underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but you find so many human elements in their stories as well. It's utterly fascinating. So do we have divergent details in the New Testament? 100%. We find details that are very unique to every individual author. All right, what's the next sniff test of the credibility of the eyewitnesses? Do the accounts contain embarrassment? And here comes my favorite visual slide of the, moment, of the moment. Wait for it, wait for it. Yes, right there. Do the, do the writings contain the criterion of embarrassment? What do I mean by that? Guys, when a testimony includes details that are embarrassing to the author or are not helpful to their case, it's an indicator light that they're probably speaking the truth. Why do I say that? Because of the tendency that all of us have to leave things out of our testimony that makes us look bad. We don't like to tell on ourselves, so to speak. And when an author shares something that's embarrassing to their case, it's an indicator light that they're probably telling the truth. So in short, do the New Testament authors provide details that make them look bad? They do. Why is that interesting? Because the New Testament authors, they weren't just writing the book. They were themselves characters in the story that they're narrating. And when you look at the New Testament, you realize that these authors often depicted themselves, I don't want to overstate this, but they often depict themselves as utter morons, okay? Uh, and let me, let me just make my case here. There are times when they seem a little dim-witted. Uh, for example, they fail to understand on numerous occasions what Jesus is saying to them. They come across as uncaring. They fall asleep twice when Jesus has asked them to pray for him in his hour of need. The disciples are often rebuked, right? Peter himself is called Satan by Jesus, and then he's corrected by Paul on a theological issue. The New Testament authors are portrayed as cowards. Every single one of them flees when Jesus goes to the cross except one. Peter denies Jesus three times after promising to never disown him. And guys, on Sunday morning, it's the women that discover the empty tomb. Why? Because the disciples are still hiding. What would the New Testament look like if it was edited? My friends, the disciples would have left out their ineptness. They would have left out their cowardice, 
their rebukes, their denials, and they would have depicted themselves as bold believers who stood with Jesus to the very end and then marched down on that Sunday morning to the empty tomb where Jesus would have congratulated them on their great faith. But that's not what we see. Here's a quotation that was helpful for me. Whatever weaknesses they may have had, the biblical authors are universally presented in scripture as scrupulously honest. And this lends credibility to their claim for the Bible is not shy to admit the failure of his people. We find the criterion of embarrassment all throughout the New Testament. So it passes that sniff test of credibility as well. Third area I wanna look at to affirm witness character is this. Does the testimony hold up under pressure? Said another way, uh, will the testimony pass a stress test? Now, I wanna look at a little bit of American history to make my point on this, partly because I'm starting to get into the Olympic spirit. Olympics kicked off in Tokyo uh, a couple days ago. It kind of feels weird though, because there's like no one there, right? Um, it's kind of an unusual Olympic experience, but um, with the Olympics kicking off, a memory came to me that I recall very clearly from the Rio Games, our last Summer Olympics. I'm not sure how many of you guys would recognize the face on the screen. Uh, this is one of our swimmers named Ryan Lochte. And uh, Ryan in the Rio Games, uh, this might sound like a pun, but it's not intentional. He got into a little hot water, so to speak. Um, he went on camera in front of CNN and he told the reporters that he was mugged, uh, that he had a gun pointed at him and that he was made to surrender money and uh, that he was a victim. And this uh, was actually fairly plausible in a city like Rio. This is a town known for petty theft, known for petty crime. And so this very much could have been true. Um, but to the host city, Rio, this was a disgrace because they had beefed up security, they had brought in additional help to make sure that this sort of stuff didn't happen during the games. And so the, the host city was kind of embarrassed that Ryan went on camera and told this story. And so rightfully, Rio wanted to get to the bottom of it. So Ryan gets hauled into a police precinct to give his testimony and to affirm it. And then his teammates who were with him that night get hauled into the precinct one at a time to give their testimony. And I'm not sure if you remember what happened, but what was interesting is that the story started to change. Now, did Ryan give up his money that night to a person who had a gun in a holster? Yes. But what truth emerged was that Ryan had vandalized a bathroom at a gas station and that the person, the gas station owner or the store owner came out and said, dude, you can't do that. You gotta pay me for my damages. And he says, no, I don't. And then uh, some kind of a security guy came by who yes, had a gun in his holster and say, you need to pay this man restitution for the damage you caused to his property. Well, that was the mugging that happened. And what's interesting is that when the precinct was involved and it was stated that, hey, someone's getting punished for this. It's either the guy who pulled out his gun and harmed you or you're gonna be in trouble if you're not telling the truth. Which is it? And this lie, it lasted about 48 hours. But it's interesting that when the pressure was dialed up, when the heat was turned up just a bit, it's interesting how the truth emerged. Why do I share this story? My friends, 11 of the 12 disciples were killed for their testimony, were killed for their testimony. Only John survived martyrdom, and that's because he died as an old man in exile on the, Isle of, on the Isle of Patmos. But each of these 12 disciples could have saved their skin by simply recanting their beliefs. But instead, Peter chose the cross. 
And James chose to die from being stoned. And Paul chose to die. He was beheaded. Why would these men and others like them choose a similar death if they were choosing to die for what they knew to be a lie? Why would they go to their death if they knew that they were covering up the biggest hoax of all time? Jesus didn't really die, right? Jesus didn't really do these miracles. He didn't really go to the grave. He didn't really resurrect. They were the people who had a front row seat to knew whether or not they were saying was true. And they chose to die for those beliefs. Does their testimony pass a stress test? You better believe it. One of my professors, J.P. Moreland, says it this way. He says, 12 powerless men, peasants really, were facing not just embarrassment or political disgrace, but beatings, stonings, execution. Every single one of the disciples insisted to their dying breath that they had physically seen Jesus bodily raised from the dead. Don't you think that one of the apostles would have cracked before being beheaded or stoned, that one of them would have made a deal with the authorities? None did. My friends, you can take this to the bank. Liars make lousy martyrs. People will not die for what they know to be a lie. All right, let me wind down. That's the eyewitness piece. Let's look at the ancillary or the supporting evidence, the corroborating evidence. Do the other pieces at the crime scene kind of fit the puzzle or does it make it more disjointed? Well, a couple things. Number one, do you know that in the New Testament, there are more than 30 historically confirmed people that are cited in the New Testament. More than 30 people that are mentioned in the New Testament are found through other historical writings. I think that's fascinating. We can get into the realm of archeology. span I did two semesters of biblical archeology span at seminary. Way more than we need to cover this morning, but let me give you just a couple of different examples. The pool of Bethesda, it was found fairly recently. John mentions in his gospel that the pool of Bethesda had, interesting detail, five covered colonnades at the pool of Bethesda. And when they found this site in Jerusalem and they unearthed it, they were like, hey, look at that. There's one, two, three, four. What do you know? There's five covered colonnades at the pool of Bethesda. An interesting detail that checked out. I went with Fellowship Bible in 2016 to Israel and I uh, geeked out a little bit when I saw this. When I saw this in Caesarea, I'm like, you gotta be kidding, that's here? And everyone's like, what are you talking about? This is the place where the pilot stone was found. This is a coastal area of Israel called Caesarea. And I ran to this thing because I had read about this in seminary. Like, Like, Mike, what's the pilot stone? Do you guys know that prior to when this was discovered in 1961, that people thought that Pontius Pilate was an invented character in the Jesus narrative because no one had ever found evidence of him being alive? He's referred to in writings, but there was never an archaeological find that affirmed that he lived. And that seems strange because this is the guy who sentenced Jesus to death. How could someone of that rank, of that level of importance, have no archaeological affirmation? People thought that sounded fishy, and it did until 1961, when this was discovered. The stone says uh, Pontius Pilatus, prefect of Judea. He must have had a summer home by the water. Do you know that the burial grounds of Caiaphas were discovered in 1992? This guy lived in the first century. We found the burial grounds of, of Caiaphas and his family in the 20th century, and we keep finding this stuff. 
Guys, what you need to know about the archaeology, the, the footprint, the stuff that's in the dirt, the ancillary evidence, Nelson Glick, a Jewish archaeologist, says this, it's worth noting that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a single biblical reference, not one. Miller Burroughs from Yale University says this, the Bible is supported by archaeological evidence again and again. The fact that the record can be so often explained or illustrated by archaeological data shows that it fits into the framework of history as only a genuine product of ancient life could do. Names of places and persons turn up at the right places and in the right periods. My friend, what we find in the dirt completely affirms the New Testament narrative. And with the one minute and 59 seconds that remains on the screen, I'm gonna to try to race through a short summary of my third favorite course at seminary. The course was called The Search for the Historical Jesus, and I loved this course. The professor said to us on day one, he says, take out your Bibles. We said, okay, took them out. He says, now put them on the ground. You're not gonna need them. We're like, okay. He says, we're gonna examine the extra biblical witness, and we're gonna see what we can learn about Jesus without even touching the Bible. I'm like, oh, that sounds cool. He says, the first thing we need to do, class, is establish a timeline. What, what's the last date we will allow into the record before we feel like we're now sacrificing accuracy? Right, so let me, let me explain that for a second. The Quran, the holy book of Islam, talks about Jesus. Right, we can talk more about that later, but the Quran references Jesus and it provides details about Jesus' life. When was the Quran written? Muhammad wrote the Quran starting in 610 AD. That's 580 years after Jesus' life. So remember that game of telephone we referenced in week one? There's probably a little bit of time lapse that would make it hard to trust the Quran as a historical record because it's so far removed from Jesus' life. So as a class, we said, well, should we just limit this to the first century? The first century entries are really the gospel writers, the New Testament authors, and Josephus. That's really it. So we said, well, let's, let's open it a bit wider. And we ended up agreeing to land on 150 AD. 150 AD, we're gonna draw a line in the sand and anything that can be referenced or as being written by that time, we'll, we'll, we'll admit that into evidence. And we discovered in this class, there are 22 extra biblical writings written by 150 AD that refer to Jesus in one way or another. I'll drop some of those on the screen here. Uh, these are five of the 22 entries. Uh, you got the letters of Pliny the Younger. Uh, he was a governor of the province of Bithynia, uh, which is modern day Turkey. And Pliny the Younger's letters are him writing in exchange to Emperor Hadrian. And a lot of his exchanges is how do I deal with the growing Christian problem? Interesting reference. Uh, Eusebius is a historian. This is his ecclesiastical history. Uh, the book in the middle that you can't even say what that's, can you recognize what that says? That's the, uh, the Jewish Talmud. Uh, second from the right, the annals of Cornelius Tacitus. He was an emperor that uh, focused on early Roman emperors. Uh, and then on the far right is Flavius Josephus, arguably the most important first century historian. Well, with just these five, and I acknowledge that you actually have to look at all 22 to do this justice, but let me tell you what we learned from just these five uh, different writings that were uh, recorded before 150 AD, okay? I'm gonna put these on the screen, but just listen and make the determination yourself as to whether or not it feels like this harmonizes with your New Testament. 23 data points, here they come. Number one, Christians were named for their founder, Jesus Christ, 
who was widely accepted as a wise and virtuous man, recognized for his good conduct. Number two, he lived during the reign of Tiberius Caesar, which we know as AD 14 to 37. And he had many disciples, both Jews and Gentiles, to whom he would teach ethical principles regarding the absence from sin. Point five, he was recognized as being able to affect nature through the performance of miracles, what the Talmud actually calls sorcery, which is interesting. Some of these miracles were healings. Others were the resurrections from the dead. Point eight, these miracles were well attested and could be checked out by eyewitnesses of the events. Point 10, he was brought into custody and accused of leading Israel astray. And for this, he was given the trial at which no one stepped forward to defend him. Point 12, he was given into the hands of the Roman procurator, Pontius Pilate, who condemned him to die by method of crucifixion. Point 15, Jesus' death ended the, I love it, superstition for a while, but it broke out again because the disciples reported that Jesus had risen from the dead and appeared to them on the third day after crucifixion. Consequently, the disciples continued his teachings, especially in Judea, where the teaching had its origin, but also in Rome. Point 21, after this event, Jesus was worshiped as deity by early believers, and a day of worship seems to have been established. Remember, the shift from Saturday to Sunday had to happen somewhere in this timeline. Point 23, perhaps he was the Messiah concerning whom the Old Testament prophets spoke and predicted wonders. We get this information outside of your Bible, my friends. I love this. I, 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 I know I'm a geek. I get it. I love this. Guys, the Jesus portrayed through this unbiased historical record, it bears an uncanny resemblance to the Jesus that's depicted in the gospel accounts. Now, I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up because we're getting ready to wrap up this day. Um, but I wanna kind of take you through a bit of uh, what have we covered in our time together this morning? A few things. Pertaining to the witnesses, do we have eyewitness testimony? Yes, we do. In fact, we have multiple independent eyewitnesses that all can be confirmed to have their own accounts. These guys wrote down their testimony early in the first century. Their testimony contains divergent details, right? They're not all the same. They're not word for word, copy and paste. They all have their own testimony and their testimony meets the criterion of embarrassment. Not all their testimony was flattering to their cause. That's a sniff test for truth. Is their testimony stress tested? Uh, yeah, these guys went to their death for their testimony and it did not change. Do we find the truth in the dirt or confirmation in the dirt? Yep, all archeology span supports what we find in the New Testament. And even when we examine the extra biblical witness, we find affirmation that lines up with exactly what we are describing. My friends, in light of what we've covered this morning, I think we can determine that Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and yes, even Paul should be considered credible witnesses. The Bible you have in your hands tells what happened in the first century.